Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. I'm Noah Rothman, John is out today, and Christine is out today. But with us, as always, is Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hey, Abe. Hey, Noah. The Washington Free Beacons. What is your title, Eliana Johnson? Editor-in-Chief. Editor-in-Chief of the Washington Free Beacon, Eliana Johnson, and Commentary Contributing Editor, Eli Lake. Hey, Eli. Hi, and also host of the Reeducation and host of the Reeducation podcast, one which the, everyone should listen to and subscribe to. Should yes, one of the few podcasts I actually listen to outside of ours. Thank you for joining us on today in a momentous day in American politics because yesterday was a big primary night around the country. I think we're probably going to start before we get into the actual primary results. I think I want to start with Kansas because everybody's talking about Kansas today. Last night, a referendum ballot initiative put to all Kansas voters that would uh, essentially repeal the right to get an abortion. Um, and Kansas voters turned out in droves. Uh, I think they almost doubled the turnout from uh, 2018 uh, in the primary races and voted against this initiative uh, in, in a resounding margin, 59% to 41%. This went down to defeat. And uh, Democrats starved as they are for good news, are taking this as a sign that the tide is turning, that Roe, I mean, and in, there's something to say for it because we had this Washington Post poll a couple of days ago that suggested there was more enthusiasm to vote, generally to vote, among those who uh, identify as uh, ho opponents hostile to uh, abortion rights than the on the pro side of the ledger. This does give them a little bit of a, a boost of enthusiasm, at least when Roe, as it were, is on the ballot. The problem is, is Roe isn't going to be on the ballot necessarily in November, but it was here. And we have a pretty clear signal that even in Kansas, bright red Kansas, uh, an anti-abortion measure did not pass. Guys, what do you think of this? Well, I mean, you know, look, this is the thing about about putting it back to the states. You can when it is on the ballot, you can, you can, uh, any state can choose to do what it, what it, what it wants to do. And uh, I'm not as shocked as some people are about this, to be honest. Um, and, and, and the thing about having something like this on the ballot that would, that would uh, lay the groundwork for uh, taking away a state's uh, rights to abortion um, is that it is entirely conceivable that you can vote against this and vote Republican. In fact, given given where the, the victory was, there's good reason to think that's exactly what 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 has and will happen. So, Eli, that's a very interesting point. You know, the conservative movement, such as it is, is, is generally pro-life. But every poll just about of Republicans, self-identified Republicans, when you put the issue of uh, making abortion illegal, flatly illegal across the board to Republicans, Roughly 30% thereabouts of people who identify as Republican voters do not support that position. I think it's probably a higher number because it was a free position. It was a free opinion when it was a matter that was settled by the Supreme Court. Now that it is a live issue back in debate, you know, one of the benefits of that is that it gives the Amer Americans a chance to come to a kind of consensus compromise on this issue in a, in a way that, that Europe has, which is neither you know, the more radical abortion on demand or third trimester abortions, but it's also not going to be a flat out 
uh, ban. And I think that there's a lesson here for the pro-life movement. Oddly, a lesson they can learn, in my view, from second wave feminism, and that goes like this. The real accomplishment of the second wave feminist was not, in the end, they failed legislatively to get was the uh, Equal Rights Amendment. The real accomplishment, in my view, and I, I talk about this in a recent podcast episode, um, is the effect that the second wave feminist had on our culture, which is that attitudes have so changed in the last half century that the view that women were too emotional or not, you know, didn't have the aptitude to compete at the highest levels in our society for the most important jobs has been demolished. And it's been demolished by very, very brilliant women like Eliana and others who have taken jobs that were traditionally for men in our society and shown that they can do them just as well. So in some ways, it was a cultural win that was more important than the political win that the feminists got. And I think that that's the lesson for the pro-life movement, which is that if you really want to change this, if you want to reduce the number of abortions that people are having, then you have to understand that it's really a cultural issue and it's not a legal question of trying to legislate it away. Even though I understand the argument, if you believe it's murder, murder should be illegal. I get all of that. But at the same time, instead of focusing, you know, you, you did the work of, of organizing in the Federalist Society and getting the Supreme Court to such a point where you overturned what I agree is a poor constitutional decision from 1973. Congratulations. But now the work is you have to win over the hearts and minds. You have to change American culture. And that's something where, you know, go back and kind of learn that lesson from Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem, whose main accomplishment is that they changed American culture so that we are a very different country today than we were 50 years ago when it comes to a whole host of women, uh, kind of equality, gender equality questions and things like that. That's fascinating. Eliana, um, yeah, so I, I want to get your take on obviously Democrats are going to take this and run with it and make this the, the centerpiece of their, unless their pitch. You, unless you want to weigh in on that, Elliot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah. One of our accomplished, most accomplished women on the on the panel. Uh, but, you know, Eli raises a really good point here. The, the pro-life movement now has lost a central animating focus. It may go to war with itself just because it has lost this one, this one agreed upon position and now has to has to negotiate amongst itself for to achieve something like a median view that is shared by most Americans, no? Uh, I wanted to go back to what Abe said for one quick second and just talk about the crass politics of this because I woke up this morning and I turned on Morning Joe and, you know, 7.15 a.m. or so, and like Joe Scarborough and John Heilman are, I swear, talking about like, how we're going to have a blue wave in November on the basis of the can that these Kansas election results tell us we're going to have a blue wave. And I just think there's a lot of wish casting happening among the mainstream media. Like there's a reason that all you're hearing about the primaries last night is about this Kansas ballot initiative. And I'm with Abe that I'm not that surprised by the results because the majority of Americans, even uh, conservative leaning Americans favor uh, legal access to abortion with some limits on it. Um, anyhow, I think the idea that like this means Democrats are going to do so much better than uh, previously thought in November is probably not right. Again, I could be totally wrong, but uh, in Kansas, we had an isolated up or down ballot initiative in November. It's not like voters are going to go to the polls and see, uh, you know, Eric Schmidt in Missouri, uh, you know, no abortion next to his name and the Democrat uh, opponent 
with, you know, full legal access to abortion next to his name, like voters in November are voting in on a much more complicated and complex set of issues. And Democrats have to account for where abortion falls in the mix of those issues and how important it is to voters in this environment. Now, maybe I'm wrong and maybe it is going to be the number one most important issue, including for Republican voters who voted, you know, in these rural counties uh, against repealing this constitutional amendment in Kansas that um, protected the right to a abortion. But I don't think that's going to happen. And I think that there's just an enormous amount of wish casting on the part of uh, Democrats and their allies in the mainstream media who are getting the import uh, and drawing the import of this wrong and drawing lessons from it that they should not be drawing. So you see them having taking a, a false sense of security away from this from this initiative? I think so. I, I'm not surprised by the results. And again, like, okay, uh, maybe Republicans won't win by the blowout margin. Like maybe there will be some impact from the row ruling and, and abortion, but I just don't see it being like the savior issue for Democrats in November in an environment that is really bad for Democrats. I don't think voters care about this issue as much as they would need to for it to uh, turn the tables um, for for it to be dispositive for Democrats in November. I have a question, though. Is it possible, though, that Democrats can take what happened, use it as, as sort of to build momentum and then try to elevate the issue now? Um, and I mean, not as if they haven't been trying to elevate this issue ever since Dobbs, but, um, you know, could they sort of utilize it to make it a more central issue um, by saying, look, you can actually have an effect on on the outcome uh, of of abortion in in your state, uh, despite what the Supreme Court uh, has has done. Eli, no, they can't do that. You know why? Because for the last six years, the Democrats have been operating as if we were in a five alarm code red emergency. First, it was the Russian agent in the White House. Then it was the gang rapist on the Supreme Court. And if you continue to message in such a way that this is the end of democracy and you have to vote for us and it never ends up being what you said it was, then you have a bit of a boy who cried wolf problem. And I would say for pro-choice Democrats, it really is a major issue now, especially in the states. And but they have played they have they have wasted that outrage. So, of course, Morning Joe Eliana is going to say, oh, it's a blue wave and this is going to be a big issue. Morning Joe has zero credibility. All of this elite opinion stuff is zero credibility because they have spent the last six years telling everybody, you know, that the, 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 the capital was on fire. and It's not true. And so I think that they're going to have a real problem getting people, especially with the economic trends as they are, inflation as it is. It's just those are the things that are going to determine this election. And the Democrats, in my view, have lost a tremendous amount of credibility and they can't do it. Well, I tend to agree with that insofar as the fundamentals are the fundamentals, inflation, gas prices, what have you, and a referendum on Democrats, you know, unified control of Washington. But how do you explain the turnout? Turnout was through the roof in Kansas and it had nothing to do with contested primaries. There weren't very many, certainly not on the Democratic side. So 
what explains it, save for a, a burst of enthusiasm around the, the notion here that rights to abortion could be taken away. How do you translate that? Uh, I think it's very easy to generate turnout when there is a, like an isolated ballot yeah. initiative. It's much more complicated when you're trying to generate enthusiasm for um, candidates who were a vote for or against them is for like a, a much more complicated host of issues. Uh, and the messaging is a lot more complicated around that. Yeah. I mean, if a candidate, if, if Republicans are, don't pivot in the general and uh, attempt to like, do you, do you think that the Republicans in the rural counties who voted against the repeal of this constitutional amendment in Kansas are the kind of people who are going to go vote for Democrats in November? I don't think that like, it makes perfect sense to me that they would cast this vote in this primary and go support Republicans in November. Yeah. I tend to agree with that as, as long as Republicans in their individual races don't try to, don't play into the narrative that this is an up or down referendum on abortion rights. And they're perfectly capable of doing that. Perfectly capable of, of striking a position that's at odds with the electorate. And, you know, one other thing is just that if you look at the, you know, overall realignment in this country and you look at the fact that, you know, white working class families have higher rates of divorce and more children out of wedlock and all of these kinds of things, you know, that would, I think, affect the, you know, those are real life experiences for people who would otherwise be, Republican voters who would sort of maybe have them say, wait a second, I mean, there's going to be times we're going to need to have an abortion. They're going to be much closer to that problem. I I, can't, I remember, remember Sarah Palin and her daughter. Remember all that? Yeah. 2008. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, if that's the new Republic, if that's the new base of the Republican Party, disaffected working class voters, not just white working class voters, I think that there's going to be a kind of, you know, it, it, it's 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 much more of a tangible issue of abortion. It's no, it's not just a a kind of, you know, I'm, I'm just still obviously a huge pro-life faction of the party, but it doesn't, I think, split as cleanly as it did before. All right. So let's talk about the base of the Republican Party, because last night was generally uh, a, a series of uh, signals about what Republicans and Republican voters and primaries want. And what they want is populism. What they want is MAGA. Hard to argue with that, given the results last night in Missouri. Eric won. Congratulations, <laughs> Eric. Um Eric Schmidt beat Eric Greitens, Donald Trump's hilarious non-endorsement of either of them, notwithstanding, uh, so he can claim credit there. What's a little bit interesting about Missouri is uh, Vicki Hartzler uh, crashed and burned, and that was Josh Hawley's preferred candidate, um, suggesting his reach in, his, in the show me state is maybe a little bit more limited. Um, a lot of Republicans did not do well if they were uh, supportive of impeaching Donald Trump. Some did. Uh, in Washington, Dan Newhouse, Jamie Herrera but Butler uh, appear to have survived their primary challenges. It's a weird state where it's an open primary and you, have, you vote just for a, for Democrats and Republicans in the top two uh, make it in. It's not a uh, it's not a primary for limited to parties. Um, Arizona seems like uh, Carrie Lake is going to pull it out. Uh, her uh, being a blight uh, on my family name. <laughs> being uh, National Review's non-endorsement notwithstanding, unfortunately. And Blake Masters also won two guys, uh, two candidates rather, who uh, have staked their reputations on the idea that there was something finicky, something, something weird happened in 2020. Not exactly sure what, but it was generally, uh, uh, it was uh, Dirty Pool 
against Republicans. That seems to be the line. And Michigan, which I find to be the most interesting uh, of all last night, uh, Representative uh, Pete Mayer, Mayer, I think is how you pronounce it. He lost. He lost his primary bid. One of the 10 Republicans to vote for impeachment. He got a big boost of support from the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee or uh, his opponent opponent. got a big boost of support from the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee, which has been playing uh, this really reckless game by supporting MAGA candidates by saying, you know, they 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 support Trump too much. Wink, wink. They're too conservative for your state. Wink, wink. Um, And that seems to have won. However, Tudor Dixon, who's also played footsie with the election deniers, uh, won her uh, race to challenge Governor Gretchen Whitmer. uh, And she's a very capable candidate, and she intends to make this a referendum on COVID. Uh, This is something that I think America needs desperately. We need a referendum on how COVID was managed, uh, particularly by Democratic politicians, is still being managed by Democratic politicians in ways that are at odds with how how voters want, obviously, across the country, even in places like Los Angeles that tried, really wanted to re-implement a a mask mandate and then abandoned it after, I suppose, a a fair amount of hostility to that policy. We need a retrospective look on what we did in the pandemic and what was valuable and necessary and what went too far. And this race may give us that at long last. Abe, what are your thoughts? Well, um, I mean, I think that's it's it's the most it's it's the issue I'd like I'd prefer to see sort of you know uh, d- debated and 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 decided upon in all this mess. Um, yeah, I hope. So. I mean, we're looking at an isolated case where where the governor's particular uh, um, COVID enforcement regime was uniquely egregious. Um, so, and, and, and got the attention it deserved for being, well, uni- not quite egregious. uniquely. I think she, she has some company with, uh, governor Gavin Newsom out in California, but, but I take your point. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so again, it's an isolated, but California too isolated cases. I mean, I don't it, know it, how much closer this gets us to what I think Noah would like to see, what I know Noah would like to see and what I would like to see, which is a sort of national um, reframing of the, 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 the ongoing COVID state of emergency. I, I would just say, I, I think the only issue in Michigan as I see it right now is, you know, what is the current or the next governor going to do about stopping the FBI from working with militias to kidnap the governor? <laughs> that's my, that's if I'm a Michigan voter, that's the main thing that I'm focused on. It's like, I'm not safe from my own FBI now. <laughs> from our own FBI. What's going on over there? <laughs> uh, Eliana, there is actually uh, a, another loss for uh, progressives in Michigan too. Andy Levin, um, a, a oh. progressive darling lost his uh, his bid, a fellow representative uh, took him out. And progressives are mourning the loss today, but it's only one of many. There hasn't been a, a it hasn't been really a banner year for progressive was, candidates. Was Andy Levin a martyr for the anti-Israel cause, maybe? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, J Street. <laughs> yes. J Street had a, had a, a is really having a, a down. So this was a, a district that was redrawn and saw uh, two sitting congressmen face off against each other um, in a primary Uh, representative Haley Stevens and Andy Levin facing off. 
Um, Haley Stevens, who is not Jewish, uh, was backed by APAC. Uh, in their new their new pack, which uh, looks to me to have been really long needed and has been effective in a lot of these primaries that it's gotten into backing pro-Israel Democrats and pro-Israel Republicans um, and trying to make Israel a bipartisan issue once again, support for Israel. Uh, but Andy Levin, who is Jewish and stridently anti-Israel, uh, went down to Haley Stevens and we promptly saw Nina Turner, um, who is the losing candidate in the the former Bernie Sanders aide who was the losing candidate in one of these Ohio primaries who lost to Chantel Brown uh, twice in one of these primaries, say, uh, come out on Twitter from the woodwork and say that APAC bought this seat. And, you know, I should be sort of inured to this stuff, but it is amazing, I think, the kind of rank bigotry (laughs) that um, were it to, you know, when it does rear its head on the far right, there is absolute hysteria from the mainstream. Or when it and- doesn't. These are these are the people who have such finely attuned senses to racism that they can d- discern it when in the words apartment and golf and, sh- and constitution in Chicago, but and- somehow miss Jews buying a seat as being a, a, a bit anti-Semitic. The, the kind of rank bigotry that is inherent in saying that if you spend money to support a candidate, you have bought the candidate and bought the congressional seat and that the Jews did it. And it only happens when the Jews do it um, is shocking. And to not see that roundly condemned by the rest of the party um, is shocking but uh but anyways the good guys no no but they'll they'll condemn it if they'll condemn it if you point out accurately that george soros and his family and his foundations have supported radical prosecutors throughout the country they'll say that's anti-semitic we can never talk about it but then they'll like just let this stuff slide you know why and there's a very simple explanation democrats and progressives are frauds and liars that's why they just they don't believe in anything it's just a big joke to them. That's why they're going to they're going to fund all these MAGA can- candidates in the primaries against Peter Major, who actually voted for impeachment. He did the thing that you're supposed to do. He, he Liz Cheney it up. And what do we get? <laughs> we get we get. Oh, no, 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 no. They are such frauds. I do not want to hear another word about how they're defending the democracy and they love the Constitution and they just want to bring us back to democracy. Oh, screw it. Well, I'm Sorry, with you I'm there, but there are, John Bedard's right now. With my I mean, progressives man. are true believers when it comes to believing Israel is is one of the fonts of evil in the world. I mean, they. I think they no, that is true. Do they do. That. They a lot, the progressives as opposed to like of not all, I mean, a lot of Democrats obviously support Israel. Of course, yeah. No, a very narrow band of very committed far left progressives who yeah have con- convinced themselves that the palestinian cause is the american cause because they have and they genuinely tend to conflate it when they talk about it they talk about it in terms of like for example police violence uh they confuse uh in a very parochial way confuse america's domestic conditions i don't i don't think it's that narrow but on the anti-semitism issue they don't believe it i think it is both like a i think there's a band on the right and a band on the left that is like not the majority position, but not exactly like two or three fringe people that is really like trying to fight its way into the mainstream. 
And I think it's wrong to say like, it, you know, it's just a couple of crazy fringe people like, you know, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley, you know, they they're actually like the rising uh, up and comers in the party um, who wield enormous influence. Well, the guy, um, and there's the- a reason that Joe Biden can't come out and tell them off. Uh, well, because the, he needs them as a part of his coalition. They're a part, you know, they're they're an important part of the party. And that is uh, that's bad. The die was cast by the establishment Democrats back when they failed <clears throat> or essentially refused to to fully and specifically censure uh, Ilhan Omar for totally. saying Exactly, Ileana, sort of precursor to to what you were describing, to saying that uh, U.S. support for Israel is all about the Benjamins, baby. All right, that was it. They, so the, I agree that the the progressives absolutely believe it, and the 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 more moderate uh, Democrats and liberals are petrified of of crossing them. But Eliana and Abe, you're you're referring to um, I think it was three or four years ago when Ilhan Omar said that there was a move by Nancy Pelosi to smack her down and bring a resolution to the House floor that condemned anti-Semitism. And she got played by Omar, where Omar made her shove all these other. No, it has to be a condemnation of all these other kinds of bigotries, including Islamophobia uh, that had nothing to do with the point at issue, which was Omar's own anti-Semitism and Pelosi got not owned by Omar. Yeah, but the other the other tell was when that was going on, you know, the it wasn't just Bernie Sanders. It was also Kamala Harris. It was it was Elizabeth Warren and they were in the beginning of the primary campaigns, but their campaigns came out with statements defending Ilhan Omar uh, saying it's 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 terrible. You should never anti-Semitism is so serious that you should never conflate anti-Semitism with just criticism of Israeli policies. That was the line. And that's Andy Levin's line to sort of bring it back. And then when Nina Turner says, you know, APAC just bought a seat in Congress, which is totally anti-Semitic, as was what Ilhan Omar says, everybody doesn't say anything. Nobody says anything about it. And yet they're so attuned to anti-Semitism after the the horrible shooting in Pittsburgh. And they blamed it on Trump, even though the guy hated Trump. It's just a joke. And it's like, as Jews, we should all be really attuned to this, that they're that the Democrats play politics with this is in, an, in the most cynical kind of way. And it's it, I, I, I can't take it anymore. I'm not I'm not I'm not questioning it. the results of the 2020 election. I'm not a Trumper. I'm saying give me a break. This party is, is like it's just it needs a, a reset. We are consistent. Yes. We notice it. We say it when it's uh, an issue. And as Eliana noted, it's not a, not necessarily limited to the progressive left uh, in Arizona. No, it's not. In Arizona, Blake Masters is the Senate nominee. And here's a guy who has not yet explained exactly why he quote, quoted Herman Goering favorably. Um, but when did he do that? Can you do that? And yeah, he was writing or... for a, a libertarian website. It's kind of like a Lou Rockwell style website where he, you know, alleged that the last just American war was the Civil War. Um, oh, there's a fair and I quoted a, a an anti-Semitic author who, who he's explained himself. He didn't explain the Herman Goering bit, but he did explain himself and just, you know, does the Kerry Lake thing lash out? You know, how dare you notice it? This is the kind of corrupt, uh, you know, uh, mainstream media that we're, you know, with, has, does looks down on the American people, blah, blah, blah. 
but he's kind of a Peter Thiel guy. He, he is mistrustful of American foreign policy, um, generally uh, as it taps into a strain on the right that is uh, hostile to American grand strategic initiatives. Uh, and he's facing a, 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 an incumbent Democrat. Arizona as a party, the Arizona Republican Party has gone absolutely crazy. They're out of their minds. They don't speak for their voters anymore. And in my view, this the whole slate that won their primaries last night in Arizona, including the Secretary of State candidate, who's questioning the validity of his own primary victory. Points for consistency, I suppose. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, this is the central animating focus of the of the the populist right that elections are fraudulent and everybody and we're we're always on the back foot and everybody's out to get us. Uh, these maybe it's competitive. Maybe the fundamentals carry them across the the threshold here, but I don't think so. I think they they lose and further cement Arizona's drift into the blue column. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, except Kristen's Kirsten Cinema is from Arizona, and I don't know. I mean, and yeah, what is like what the is she? odd she's woman one out? One of the most the centrist de- members of the of the Senate. Right, what Democratic I'm saying caucus. is that, the, the, but the, it seems like a lot of Democrats would like kind of would like her to not be in the party anymore too i mean there will be an effort to primary her for sure follow her in the in the in the bathroom you know oh there will be an effort to primary her for sure and they might be successful but the model she's striking is apparently successful in places that are purple states arizona is still a purple state but it's getting bluer by the day and republicans uh in their effort to I just, I don't know, salve the wounds of 2020 have uh, begun to you know drift even further away from a consensus view that apparently Arizonans share, which is that, you know, we need to actually talk about the issues on the table in November. I don't know how these Republicans are going to pivot away from the positions they struck in this primary towards something that resembles what people actually care about in November. Well, I'm with you now. I think um, we saw the model for the there's a type of Republican who can get elected in Democratic states uh, like Massachusetts, like Illinois, uh, like New Jersey. OK, like you're not going to get, um, you know, the Republican who's elected in Alabama is not going to be um, Chris Christie. Uh, you have to calibrate the candidate to the state. And I that's what I think we don't see happening in Arizona. Um, and I think. It's something that um, is a challenge for the party and the party's primary uh, voters where they're at right now. Uh, But we'll see. I think we'll see in the general election whether it is the case that the candidates emerging from these primaries are not well calibrated to the general (laughs) like electorate in these purple states. Yeah, like, is Blake Masters, not a Charlie Baker, not a Chris Christie, not a Bruce Rauner. Uh, probably not, but we'll see. Right. Yeah. I mean, you you didn't even mention Maryland. It was very unlikely right. that Republicans are going to hold the state house after two consecutive terms of a Republican governor in the, one of the bluest states in the country. Sure. But at the same time, Republican voters turned out to vote in Dan Cox, who like very much like Kerry Lake has made 2020. This, the focus of his campaign, which is utterly bizarre. It's so backward looking, even if you believe it. The idea here that this is this is a winning issue in November is is just strikingly myopic. 
Except anyway, it's not it's not even about the election. It's about like, listen, everybody is t- all the people I hate. Tell me I can't talk about this. So I have the stones to talk about it. So you want to vote for me. That's what this is. It's just, I mean, it's yeah, but just that's more just negative partisanship. That's what it is. I, I believe that. But it is so self-serving and so self-destructive from a political standpoint. No, I, listen, I agree. You're right, Noah, of course. But the problem is, and we've all experienced this, I am sure the commentary listeners and everybody on this panel has all experienced it, that there will be like, you know, you'll read a story, you'll see, uh, you know, Chris Murphy give some horrible speech or something like that. And you'll be like, you know what? Screw it. That's it. That's it. You know what? Burn the whole thing down. That is the impulse that we're dealing with right now, which is that you can go for a while. You can go for a while. You can say, you know what? Let's be reasonable. Let's talk about the future. Let's, you know, like try to reach consensus on things when we can. But then you will get like, I don't know, you know, it depends on for a lot of people was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, but it could be any number of things. It could be like, you know, like Amazon deciding that they're not going to ever, you know, sell Abigail Schreier's book, whatever it is. And it's just going to be like, this is so crazy. These people are just there's no way you just got to stop them. That's the only thing that's important. And that is what you don't I stop think. them by self-immolating. I mean, that's this is literally yeah, how but children like the, think. I know. I You're right. However, in in the in that context, if you if you are the candidate who is like, listen, I am willing to say all the things that these libs tell me I can't say and I will never stop doing it. That's why people support it. They don't support it because they believe Marjorie Taylor Greene's nutty theories about space lasers or whatever they support it because she's she's so demonized by msnbc and they hate msnbc more they hate CNN i, see, I more. think it's i think it's murkier than that and i think this okay. is the danger of it and uh, you know so I, i'm very much in line with noah here there's a tendency when you when you feel that way you say okay well i'm i'm here to say what everyone says i cannot say and right. that becomes the new definition of truth and so mm. it, it, it's no longer exactly mm-hmm. discerning. Well, I don't I don't agree with what she's saying, but she's but, you know, she's 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 defying the, the bounds of the acceptable. And therefore, I support that. It's it's this complete kind of collapsing of the idea of what of what truth is and what and 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 sort of defying speech codes. It becomes one in the same. And I think that's the danger. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a danger there, and that's a really shrewd point. Which is that maybe it starts one way and then it ends you right. know, with you. Yeah, that's a very good point. Eliana, what do you think? Am I am I all wrong on this? I don't have an immediate reaction. I, you know, on a lot of this primary stuff, I I often feel like I'm just not sure that I know the meaning of like the the various currents yet. Um, how important is Trump and Trump's endorsement? How influential is he in the party? Um, I just um, I'm just not sure yet. Um, honestly, I really am not. Well, let's move on to things we have a firmer opinion on half a world away. Um, Nancy Pelosi, to her credit, uh, mm-hmm. touched down in Taipei yesterday. And the reaction from Democrats, from even the president, briefly, a couple of a week or so ago, where he was skeptical of this, President Donald Trump, um, has been bizarrely hostile to what I think is a, a perfectly justified, uh, in fact, noble effort to, uh, to bring a CODEL to, to Taiwan and to shore up our diplomatic presence there and reassure 
uh, our, our partners. Um, and, and they're just, they're freaking out over what China would do. Tom Friedman, they're freaking out. Why? Why? Even if you're, even if we're just, let's go back to the negative partisanship thing alone. Even if your only view of this is that China doesn't like it, so therefore I should. Like that should be, the, even if that's very simplistic, a heuristic for navigating complex, thorny geopolitical issues, but that's a pretty simple one. China, China's against it, I'm for it. Where is that sentiment? Is it on the right? It's certainly not on the left. Well, I, mean, I am totally with you now. Matthew Continetti, frequent guest on this podcast, wrote his column for the Free Beacon last Friday, headline, Pelosi must go uh, to Taiwan. And I was just shocked that more people weren't saying that. In fact, Matt, who's at AEI now, had colleagues at AEI. AEI, like the bastion, uh, you know, he was the bastion of neoconservatism, used to be, had colleagues who were saying it's imprudent for her to go. Um, the entire Quincy Institute is saying how reckless this uh, trip is, uh, the isolationists over there. But uh, Tom Friedman, you mentioned his column, uh, how dangerous this is. I am, um, I, I'm not surprised those people are saying what they're saying. I'm surprised there aren't more people saying like, it's important that she go, she's doing the right thing, uh, particularly in the administration. Uh, they've kind of negated the entire point. Like they've negated any good she's done with their trip by, uh, by signaling and broadcasting their pusillanimity. <laughs> I mean, as though I don't even know what they expected to see as a retaliatory response from China. I mean, what we've seen so far has been we're going to limit imports of fruit. Literally, that's what they're, they're doing. And we're not going to borrow. We're not going to buy your fruit anymore. Taiwan still going to buy your semiconductors, but no more fruit. Uh, that's what you would expect to see a calibrated diplomatic response. What they ex what they were talking about, sort of this bizarre idea that China would uh, do something militarily in kinetic, kinetic response, as though that's how nations conduct themselves. That's how nations make uh, make strategic decisions about uh, confronting their peer competitors in their regions because in a fit of pique over uh, a congressional visit to Taiwan. That's just nonsense. But the, but I mean, people are reacting to the military uh, saber rattling over there. I mean, you know, uh, China's playing around with the, you know, coming up near the, the borders of the Taiwan Strait and with, with ships and with planes. And so they do on doing a semi-regular basis. Yeah. yeah. But the people who are freaking out aren't aware of that, right? They this don't is, freak this, out when we yeah. transit the Taiwan Strait, which is far more provocative. It's, the, it's surprising in a way that Friedman and I mean, let's leave Quincy aside because, you know, what, what, what are we going to do about them? But it's surprising that you would get the sort of, you know, mainstream establishment center liberal types freaking out about this, because here's the one thing or one of the benefits that we know from the from the kind of Nixon Kissinger strategy of intertwining the Chinese and American economies, which is that you neither party can do anything too drastic because you will you know, cause a huge, enormous economic shock in your own country as a result of that. And, and China's economy is not in a great shape right now. They just had a major scandal with one of their enormous like real estate holding companies that it turned out it was like a Ponzi scheme. 
there are huge, huge structural weaknesses right now in China's economy. If they wanted to really get serious with the United States in some ways and 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 make good on some of the saber rattling, they would risk you know economic devastation in the middle of a global recession. So I'm surprised that Friedman and others did not remember that, which is like always like in the background for years. That was the argument for like why, you know, trade and and letting China and the WTO and all this stuff stuff was really good because it was like a kind of hedge against a U.S.-China war. And even though I now support a decoupling because I think there's a lot of problems with that as well. And we don't want China to have all this influence. But nonetheless, at this moment, it would be suicidal for the Chinese to do anything too too great on this. And then and they knew that they were sort of boundary pushing. And it was really disappointing to see uh, the pusillanimity of the uh, of, of Biden and the White House in particular. Abe, um, how representative of Democratic opinion is Nancy Pelosi? Does this reflect what the caucus wants to see? Huh. In terms of her 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 sort of to the degree sort of that she's I mean, uh, yeah, Pelosi's, the, right. this is not something that she came to yesterday. Even when she was a backbencher, she was she was big on Chinese human rights violations. Right. She's, right. she's consistent on this. But the party does seem to be shifting out from beneath her to a degree, at least that they're very concerned about the prospect of conflict. Just even just the, this was a revealing moment. I think the majority because of the, 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 just the, the 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 fear, the outright fear, and maybe it has a lot to do with Ukraine because it kind of brings home the notion that conventional wars between states still happen, uh, even wars of territorial acquisition. Um, but that it sort of yeah, I think it, it pulled back the mask in a way that that surprised me. Yeah, I think the Ukraine point <clears throat> is important because I think a lot of this, the backdrop for this, is that we are um, in a time where a number of seemingly unthinkable things have become more thinkable. So then you see, um, you know, this, 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 the military theatrics around this trip and you think, well, we're, we're in a time where war seems to break out. And so who knows? But um, so I think that's part of it. I would say my guess is that the majority of the party is in favor of human rights promotion in China and elsewhere. So long as it means condemning, uh, putting up perhaps a Taiwan flag uh, next to your name on social media, um, you know, uh, maybe uh, writing an op-ed here or there, whatever. When it goes a little bit beyond uh, signaling and when there might, to the point where it might provoke some reaction from Beijing, (laughs) then it's a different story, right? (laughs) Then it's like, well, now this is a particularly bad time, you know, (laughs) We don't want to do and it's like, well, there's never a good time um, among among. For, for, right. So as long crowd. as there are no consequences yeah. precisely. for your advocacy, then then it's easy. That's uh, my guess. Yeah. Uh, Eli, uh, we're going to close out the show, I think, with uh, you, Eliana, one of your thoughts on this as well. But you were the first person to uh, I saw with the news that uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri was obliterated. Uh, while smoked while standing on his uh, on his uh, balcony in a safe house in the, the heart of Kabul. Although he wasn't smoked, he was carved up, right? Yeah, it was one of those yeah. blade drones. Yeah, a very an incredibly surgical strike. 
that limited uh, collateral damage and uh, and definitely. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm not doubting any. I don't want to. I'm not doubting anything. But I remember after uh, after the uh, the raid that got Bin Laden, you know, uh, the uh, you know, the White House gave a press presser uh, with John Brennan where he said a whole bunch of stuff that just turned out to be totally false. Like he died with like, you know, he, he had a human shield and all this other stuff. And it was all like, I don't know where he got that from. Um, but uh, we just have to be, you know, I mean, we'll find out more about, about this about, but I just want to say they claim no civilian, no other civilians were hit. It was just Zawahiri. I hope that's true, but we'll see. Fair enough. So well, as far as what we do know, early days yet, but I saw this, mm-hmm. uh, read this Washington Post report about the degree to which uh, the CIA had been working this and, you know, the, probably a lot of sources in intelligence uh, create crafting this very favorable narrative uh, to them. It, they might have just gotten a tip from one disgruntled person. Um, but at the very least, if you're going to be charitable about this, does suggest that over the horizon counterterrorism is not unachievable in South Central Asia, does suggest that there's still some intelligence on the ground, uh, which we thought we had lost. So to be fair to the administration, first of all, meeting out cosmic, uh, you know, a karmic justice to one of the 9-11 plotters is always justified and always commendable. Um, but it also does uh, reassure those of us who thought perhaps that we had completely sacrificed all operational capacity in this part of the world. Not true. Yeah. Well, OK, but. Zawahri returned to Kabul after the calamitous withdrawal. And he clearly thought, like all of us, that there was no way he was untouchable now. The Americans had gone. And so he miscalculated. His hubris was was incorrect. But now that this has happened, I'm wondering if we'll ever be able to do an over the horizon strike again. So we kind of got like, I mean, like the idea that he was just in an apartment building and was occasionally go on his balcony, even though he didn't leave his, leave the building suggests that he believed he wasn't going to be touched and that you couldn't get him at this point. And now that, you know, we have demonstrated that, in fact, we can get you. I'm wondering if we're going to be able to have that luck again. That said, all credit to the CIA. It was a good day for Biden's presidency. Biden deserves credit for, uh, you know, pulling, you know, giving the order to do it. Um, It's not his instinct. Clearly not his instinct. He was against the bin Laden raid. I mean, but... um, you know, so this this was good. I don't know that this justifies the horrendous withdrawal from Afghanistan. In fact, I would say it clearly doesn't justify it, but it's good. And, um, you know, I mean, I, you said something, I think, yesterday on the podcast, Noah, that was really that was so sharp because you were like, it wasn't it doesn't feel like it's that big a deal. The head of Al Qaeda getting killed. It's just it's not as much of a priority for us. Twenty one years after 9-11, it doesn't it wasn't even the top international story it was nancy yeah. pelosi and the grain shipments from ukraine and so that to me tells us that if you i mean we're i mean i don't know i'm old enough i think we're all old enough here to remember in the aftermath of 9 11 that was the consuming priority remember we had endless debates about whether or not we could win over young muslims so they didn't agree with the fanatical vision of al-qaeda and salafists who wanted to restore the caliphate and we had to win the war of ideas and all that. Does anybody think that there's any chance that we're going to get a return of the caliphate? Is that on the table at all? Do we care about that? Of course not. It's not going to happen. So in some ways, even though there were a lot of, you know, the war and terror, you could say distracted us from great power. 
you know, we built a huge surveillance, surveillance Leviathan. We needed to keep an eye on China and Russia, and we didn't. There's a lot of critiques of the war on terror, and there are, a lot of them are valid. But what about Zawahiri's vision? Zawahiri wanted to restore the caliphate. He died at 71 years old. There is no chance of that happening. The best he can hope for is some backwater called Afghanistan. It's now run by the Taliban. But the rest of the Arab world, those regimes are not, haven't been cowed by Al-Qaeda. They're making peace deals with Israel. What if, you know well, what I'm the saying? Sunni, the, the Sunni states for sure. And we may not get yeah. a caliphate, Eliana, but we do have the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan Fair enough. ruled by the yeah. Taliban. A very now, especially well-armed, well-funded instant organization that is, um, if this is any indication, given the the place of prominence in which uh, this guy was hiding out, a, a Haqqani safe house, by the way, which has a, sort of nebulous ties with Pakistani intelligence. It defies belief to suggest that the Taliban didn't know he was there, wasn't supporting him was there. Islamabad probably knew he was there. Um, and we have now an Al-Qaeda state. Once more. I share your view that you expressed yesterday that I, uh, I think it's a bad sign that... Um, you know, when when Biden said we're pulling out of Afghanistan, he said, it's great. We can leave. Al Qaeda's not there. Um, and I think it's a further bad sign that this guy was uh, droned basically out in the open, like not in some, you know, mud hut tunnel somewhere. But he seemed to feel pretty confident that he could be out and about in Afghanistan. And um, and well, I think you know, John's point was valid, too, that, of course, we're going to continue to hunt these guys down. Um, what it says about the general milieu in which these prominent terrorists are operating uh, in Afghanistan is not uh, inspiring or heartening for um, national security. No, it, it it's a it's a terribly ominous portent about uh, what a lot of people around this administration warned about, certainly not Tony Blinken, who testified before Congress, the shocking statement that, quote, the Taliban has committed to prevent terrorist groups from using Afghanistan yeah. as a base for external operations that could threaten the United States or its allies, as though they're going to look after our interests. But then you had people like uh, Deputy CIA Director Dave Cohen testifying himself that we have indications that Al Qaeda is moving into Afghanistan, that the Taliban supports them. Uh, Scott Breyer, who's, who was the Defense Intelligence Agency director, I, I'm not sure if he still is, but saying that they, uh, it will take maybe one for two, or two years for Al Qaeda to reconstitute itself and project terrorism into Europe, into North America. That is their objective, and they are still working on it. And they now have a partner in the form of the Taliban in control of, uh, of Afghanistan. So we're looking at the prospect in the near term, not in the distant future, in the near term of a revived Al-Qaeda threat, to say nothing of the Islamic State, or whatever their, their, their differences may be. There was also this weird attempt to suggest on the part of the administration that in, inter-terrorist politics would, would keep us safe. Um, we're, we're staring down the barrel of another safe haven for terrorists that will project power abroad. And what will we do about it then? Mm, okay, can I just say something, though? I Yes, everything you said is correct. However... Don't, it's, I think it's a mistake to make to, to, to think that we're back to like pre 9-11. And here's why. Because uh, we, and I don't mean we like the four of us here, but I mean the U.S. intelligence community and uh, the U.S. military, particularly special operations, have gotten very good at disrupting terrorist networks. That was a whole bunch of knowledge that nobody had 
on September 12th, 2001. And we learned through many mistakes. Uh, we let bin Laden get away at Tora Bora, if you remember, in Afghanistan. There's a whole lot of things. There were all mistakes that were made and lessons learned. And now, you know, I, I mean, just saying, like, I don't, you know, everything from airlines, airline security to, you know, how we're able to sort of, you know, track cellular communications has vastly improved. And that I think it's going to be difficult, um, especially since also, you remember before 9-11, Saudi Arabia was kind of like had a foot in both sides. I mean, they were financing all of these jihadist organizations for like 30 years. Now the Saudis are like really good in terms of counterterrorism and financing and things like that, as with all these other Gulf states. It's a different world, yes, and they do, they do have a base. They have a country, a crappy country, a landlocked country that they can project power from. Correct. That's, that's all true. But we're a lot better, too, and the geopolitics have changed in such a way. And there's certainly the concern that used to be really like the war of ideas and everything like that. I don't think anybody could look at the last 21 years and the experience of life under ISIS caliphate or where Al Qaeda or its affiliates have taken over, whether it's Somalia or wherever, and say, well, this is this is actually a better model for organizing society than, you know, what we have now. Nobody is saying that. That's a very hopeful vision. I, well, I, I'm not, I, it's, I'm not trying to be pangloss here. I'm just saying that, like, we should put it in perspective because I don't want to get to the point where and I don't think we will. But I think, you know, China that's the big, big threat. Russia's a threat right below it. And then I think terrorism. And, it's not, and, and 21 years ago, the only thing we talked about in terms of threats was Al Qaeda and Salafi terrorism. True enough. But that didn't answer my question. Uh, so I'll pose it to you, Abe. <laughs> in the event that there is a spectacular terrorist attack in the West, and it is traced back to operational planning in Afghanistan, how do we respond? Uh, who's in office? <laughs> Joe Biden, according to his own intelligence, because it'll be one to two years, right? Let's let's just say it's before the end of his term. Um, I think we respond robustly, um, but without boots on the ground. Um, because because we have withdrawn, I think the the idea on the on the part of the administration would be, um, well, we can respond robustly because Americans aren't there now. Um, but I think the the dogma of no boots on the ground still lasts. Eliana, I think that, is, that, I think that, that is too deep now in in the sort of objection to the quote forever wars and 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 whatever else. Yeah, I mean, I I think that'll be the the objective. I mean, that'll be the hopeful goal. But can you even Eliana? Can you pull that off? Can you? I mean, we're the whole reason why we had the global war on terror is because that didn't work. That idea that you can uh, achieve uh, through air superiority objectives on the ground failed in the 1990s. Uh, so how do we do this? Do we do this the exact same way again? Do we just pretend as though this, you know, a, a slap on the wrist, a retaliatory response will, uh, will affect exactly what we want to achieve on the ground? I mean, I'm sure that'll be the temptation. Can I just say, I'm sorry to jump in before Eliana responds. That was pre-drone. Um, yeah. Drone drone warfare is has changed a lot. I mean, it's one of the things that, that you know, in, in Eli's list of how we've gotten better. Um, we're, we're able to do a lot more because of drone technology. Fair enough. Eliana? 
we're seeing, I think, a really interesting, there, there's a bipartisan consensus in both parties um, for a certain level of like, you know, muscular American involvement on the world stage, and then a divide in both parties. Um, so I don't know, I'm not, I'm not saying this right, but let's say like the Democratic Party split 50-50 between like, uh, and I'm being crude with the terms, isolationists and interventionists, um, and same with the GOP. So the parties are split, and then there's like a certain view that you that um that unifies like half the Republicans and half the Democrats, and vice versa. Um, I will say, like, I, I moderated a couple of Republican congressional debates in um in Florida. Uh last month yes last month a couple of weeks ago and i was surprised by the number of you know uh, it was to a republican audience the number of republican candidates who are speaking to a republican base uh, a couple of them said the united states should do nothing unless attacked like we gotta wait till pearl harbor and these views have truck you know on the right and the left and the biden administration which is a reflection of the democratic party um is divided between these views. They are bringing in people from the Quincy Institute and they have members of the, you know, regular democratic establishment, the Tony Blinkens and the Jake Sullivan in good standing. So I think it's incredibly hard to predict how the Biden administration would respond. And I think there would be an enormous debate between the, uh, the far left and the normies in that administration about how to respond. Are we sure Blinken and Sullivan I agree with you. I thought they were the normie coalition as well. But then they went along with and defended the horrible withdrawal from Afghanistan from Afghanistan that they must have known was ridiculous and was going to lead to, you know, all kinds of problems in terms of, you know, in not just Afghanistan, but our stature in the world. So. I mean, I wonder, is Jake is Jake Sullivan really like, you know, he's no well, it's, well, it's hard, it's hard to protest? know because we heard from them after the fact. So, right. you know, yeah. it's like, are they going to come out after the withdrawal and say, like, we were against it the whole time? OK, then you then you get fired. Then you need sure. to resign. Right. Uh, so it's hard to know, like, what do they really think? And, you know, you'll be surprised to hear, Eli, like my best sources in media <laughs> aren't like, you know, in the Biden administration. Uh, so I don't really know like what these guys are thinking, but uh Tough, tough to say. We'll have to wait for the tell. My best source is Karine Jean-Pierre. She just knows everything. <laughs> Listen, this is what the a girl kind of, boss. That's the kind of crushing morosity that is our brand. Eli, we have to get away from your hopeless optimism here. You're far too <laughs> challenging for uh, for the. I'm tone not saying. Of this Listen, podcast. I'm not. You're you're we're in agreement. It's a problem. It's potentially they can stage these attacks. I'm just saying that it's like I don't I don't want to assume that it's coming. I don't want to get into that because I think there's a lot of things we can do to thwart it. There's the shifting kind of politics at the moment is such like I'm very worried about Pakistan. But on the other hand, I just like, you know, it's 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 let's just take a moment to appreciate the fact that on 9-11, we had a huge problem with the regimes that ran the Gulf. And we really don't have that problem anymore. And we should we should pat ourselves on the back and say, like, well, what not not like we did it. But I'm saying things have changed to such a point where I mean, it would have been unthinkable to say, like, well, you know, actually, the Saudis are telling us right now good intelligence about, like, you know, terrorist funding and financing and stuff like that. I mean, after 
I don't know. I, I was, I was, I'm older than you guys. So I was a state department correspondent and I remember writing these stories about how awful the Saudis were and everybody, cause it was true. They were really bad and now they're great. So on that stuff, they're yeah, not great right, exactly. on, Maybe not great, they're not great on, when better. it comes to the press freedoms of former Washington post colonists. They're terrible on that. And I don't fair want enough. to endorse any of that. So fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you very much, everybody. This has been a, an enlightening discussion. John will be back tomorrow. Uh, for everybody who's concerned, uh, Christine will be back next week and the whole team will be together uh, next Monday. But we will talk to you tomorrow uh, about listen to the reeducation, listen Great. to the reeducation podcast with Eli Lake. It really is fabulous. And insane retros. Who was your retros. last guest? Well, OK, the last guest uh, is we do a whole Zawahiri one that's out today. Uh, and it's Bill Roggio. But the one that I'm very excited about, which is going to be the one coming out on Friday, everybody tune in. It's Jesse Single. Oh. And we're going to talk Ooh, about Tavenstock, the uh, UK like gender affirmation clinic that was just shut down by their health service and what it means for, uh, you know, addressing, uh, you know, the, the sort of new rise of, uh, of, of these of transgender children or children who claim that they're transgender and and jesse's been one of the best reporters in the country on that so i'm looking forward to that yeah as i'll be listening to that eliana what should everybody read on the washington free beacon today uh good question let me take a look to make sure i give the bet oh uh our piece on uh and i'll send it to you to link in your show notes our piece on the biden administration uh, grants going to harm reduction drug facilities that are oh, distributing yeah. crack pipes. Uh, we went to the sites. We got the crack pipes. These places are getting taxpayer funds from the Biden administration. Uh, so the new line has to be, yes, the sites are getting the taxpayer dollars. <laughs> They're just not going to the, you know, to the actual crack pipes. They're going for the other stuff. This is yet another example of more it's disinformation. Not, it, it's not happening. And it's good that it's happening, even though it's yep. not happening. Yeah. Cool. I will definitely be linking to that and reading it. I urge all you listeners to do the same. Once again, thanks very much for joining us today. For the absent Abe and Christine, for Eliana, for Eli and Abe, I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning.